This is episode number 385 with Whitney English and Alexandra Caspero from the Plant Based Juniors. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Plant-Based Juniors is a community for parents and educators interested in properly implementing plant-based diets for children. Created by Alexandra Caspero and Whitney English, both mums and registered dietitian nutritionists, Plant-Based Juniors is dedicated to filling the gap in credible pediatric nutrition information for plant-based infants and children. Plant-Based Juniors promotes an all-inclusive, predominantly plant-based approach supporting all families from vegan to vegetarian to flexitarian. Basically, if parents want to get more plants on their plates, then Plant-Based Juniors wants to help. Plant-Based Juniors has multiple resources available to support the feeding journey, including their predominantly plant-based pregnancy guide, First Bites, the definitive guide to baby-led weaning for plant-based babies, and Plant-Based Juniors Batch Cook eBook. And in today's episode, we chat about why Whitney and Alexandra both started eating a plant-based diet, why they stayed vegan during their pregnancies, and the incredible story of how they started Plant-Based Juniors, the secrets they wish everyone knew about having a healthy plant-based pregnancy, and the common mistakes that can prevent you and your bub from thriving, the one nutrient you should never leave off your plate regardless of your diet choices, the four crucial nutrients to focus on during your pregnancy and where to find them, what's the best way to get protein if you're eating plant-based, the vital dietary changes to consider during breastfeeding so that your baby can thrive and you don't get depleted, the pivotal nutrients that all mamas require during pregnancy and breastfeeding, yet so many people are missing out on these why we need to end the shame around formula feeding, plus what you need to know about plant-based alternatives to breast milk, how to meet all of your needs and your children's nutritional needs through a rich and nourishing plant-based diet, evidence-based strategies to reinforce healthy eating habits in our kids and navigate through their picky eating phases, the problem with not letting your kids eat junk food and how to help them develop a food-neutral mindset, plus so much more. This episode is jam-packed. You're going to want to get out a pen and paper and take notes. It's so good. And for everything that we mention in the show, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 385. And now without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Whitney and Alexandra from the Plant-Based Juniors. Beautiful ladies, I am so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you each tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I can go first. This is Alex. Thank you, by the way, so much for having us on. I'm really excited to talk with you today. So I had a big bowl of blueberry oatmeal with banana and a very large iced coffee. Yum. (laughs) 
I had sweet potato waffles that were also made from oats. Oh, yum. That sounds amazing. Getting in that fall flavor. (laughs) Sounds delicious. I need to get a waffle maker so I can make some healthy waffles. Oh, it is one of the most important devices in my kitchen. (laughs) Yes. And I was going to say, she has the best oat waffle recipe. We make it like two times a week. It's so good. (laughs) What did you have for breakfast? This morning, I had oats and wild blueberries and some flax and a little bit of cinnamon and some bikinis on top. What's a bikini? Oh, I don't know bikini. (laughs) Bikinis are like activated buckwheat. Oh. Yeah, so they're like really crunchy. Just to add a little bit of crunch. Yeah, like a groat? Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, nice, nice. I love that. Yeah, I'll be looking into bikinis after this combo. (laughs) They're so yummy. They're really good. Delicious. So ladies, I want to hear a little bit about your story, each of your stories, how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do. How did this all unfold for you guys? I'll go first. So this is Whitney. I got my start as an entertainment reporter, actually. That's what brought me out to Los Angeles over 10 years ago. And it was in the Hollywood scene reporting on celebrity diet and fitness trends when I realized how much misinformation was out there and how harmful it was to people. And it really made me as a journalist want to get to the root of the truth of health and fitness because that was something I was personally interested in. And so about, I think about six years now, I decided to go back to school to become a registered dietitian. And I did that. And then shortly after I got pregnant and Alex and I had actually met as bloggers several years before and stayed in touch. And when I was pregnant, she had just given birth to her son, Vander. And so we got to talking, we had both gotten into plant-based eating in our own ways and were facing now feeding children plant-based and plant-based pregnancies and plant-based breastfeeding. We had a lot of questions. And so we started kind of volleying them back and forth off each other. Like, do you know what the answer to this is? Have you heard what I'm supposed to do about this? And we found that there was really a lack of credible information out there that was available, even for experts in nutrition, like ourselves, registered dietitians, we were having a hard time finding an answer to our questions. So that's really how Plant-Based Juniors was born. We came together and we're like, let's take all this information that we learned through our pregnancies and feeding our children and share it with other people who are probably just as confused as we were. I love it. Thank you for sharing. What about you, Alex? Yeah, so I'll keep my story somewhat short. So I love food. I've always been interested in in cooking. My mom's a wonderful cook. So I feel like I grew up in the kitchen. Uh, knew I wanted to go into nutrition right away in college and kind of had a, a little bit of a winding career. I actually started out in as a WIC dietitian, which is sort of our national program for like lower income women and children and learned a lot there, especially about pediatric nutrition. Kind of completely switched gears. I went out and got a master's in exercise physiology. I've always loved exercise, thought I actually wanted to be a sports dietitian. Did that for a little bit. I was at a D1 university and then actually from there, got really interested in eating disorders and then started working at an eating disorder clinic and then completely switched gears when I got pregnant and started doing more, coming back again to pediatric and prenatal nutrition and sort of, again, how Whitney described, we connected and plant-based juniors was born. Oh, I love it. So I first discovered you guys on one of my friend's podcasts, Simon Hill. 
And I thought what you were sharing was just incredible. I am currently pregnant with my first. Oh, congrats. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So exciting. It is the best ever. It's so much fun. I've been plant-based for a while now. And so this has been a plant-based pregnancy. And I want to hear from you guys. Let's take it from the top. I want to hear about how we can have a healthy plant-based pregnancy. Like what are the specific nutrients that you need during pregnancy? And tell us about any supplements that pregnant women need to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I think this is, again, like Whitney said, where PBJ started. I mean, you know, I feel like no matter what eating plan you have, the moment you become pregnant, there's that, you know, obviously like elation and you're so excited. And then I think for me, it was like, oh my gosh, am I doing this right? You know, I felt very, very confident in my plant-based diet for myself, but I tell you what, you become a mama and all of a sudden you're responsible for someone else's life and doubt creeps in. And I feel like that is a big part of our mission is really to empower other parents, other mothers to say like, Hey, look, this is what the science actually says. And, you know, here's how you can do this and also feel really confident about your decisions. And when it comes to a plant-based pregnancy, you know, of course, nutrient needs increase across the board, but that doesn't mean it's difficult to do that with a plant-based pregnancy. I think it's also important to start off by saying, I think there's a difference in what we want to do versus perhaps what actually happens in pregnancy. I know for me, before I got pregnant, I thought I was going to eat all of these like beautiful smoothies and vibrant green juices and just really nourishing plant-based foods. And I was so nauseous for the first like 15, 20 weeks. I couldn't keep down barely anything, let alone a raw vegetable. And I really subsided a lot on, you know, cooked grains and and really simple foods that I could actually eat and, and not feel sick afterwards. And so I think it's a really important thing to tell all, especially new parents, like, giving yourself the grace for perhaps what you think your pregnancy diet is going to look like and maybe what it actually looks like. And knowing that some days, you know, if all you can get down is some toasted bread and a prenatal, I mean, that's okay. You know, I mean, your body is really resilient and there's a reason we recommend supplements during this time. And just, you know, I think just sort of starting out by saying, we know not every day is going to be this perhaps picture of health and and that's okay. There's a lot that's out of our control when it comes to what kind of foods feel good and sound good, especially pregnant, because it's just such a weird time in the body. But saying that, I think that the first thing I will say is that calories do increase, but not that much. And I think for plant-based eaters, it's really important to kind of use those additional calories to get in some nutrient-dense items. So we recommend an extra serving of things like whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, maybe some green leafy vegetables, sort of using that extra 300, 400 calories, depending on the trimester, to help to sort of, you know, get more bang for your nutrient buck or for your additional calories. I was just going to say that I found really interesting that you really only need during pregnancy an extra 300 calories. Before I was pregnant, I thought, yeah, I just get to eat whatever I want. I just get to add in as much as I want. But that is not the case. It's different in breastfeeding, I understand. And we can talk about that afterwards. But it really is only an extra 300 calories. Like, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the case for the second trimester. It's a little bit higher for the third, you know, depending about 400, 450, depending on where you were when you started. But the one thing I will say, too, is that we don't actually recommend calorie counting. You know, I think that especially when you get into the second, third trimester, at least it was for us, your appetite naturally increases. Pregnancy, of course, is a time of weight gain. And I think especially 
for women perhaps who are are plant-based and and really aware of eating healthy, you know, it's not anything to be ashamed of. Weight gain is natural. We want to gain weight. Healthy weight gain during pregnancy usually means healthier outcomes for babies. So really sort of taking this time and making sure that we are nourishing ourselves with additional calories. Oh, I was just going to say, for me, during my pregnancy, it's been very much about listening to my body and just trusting and going, oh, I feel like eating more today. Okay, I'm going to eat some more sweet potato. I'm going to eat some more berries because my body is telling me that it wants that. If you're eating nourishing foods and following kind of the general guidelines that we would give anyone in any diet, which is proper food pairings, you know, eating on a regular basis, then you will absolutely be able to trust your body to tell you when it needs more and when it's had enough. It's when you get into this mindset of thinking, oh, like you said before, oh, I'm, I'm eating for two or I can, I can eat anything I want. That's when your signals start to get crossed if all of a sudden you think that it's a free-for-all or that it's different than your average diet should be. Basically, I just tell women, follow the same diet you've been eating before, which should hopefully already be packed with nutrient-dense foods, and then listen to your body. And it really won't, it won't be some stark change between your pregnancy diet and your normal diet. Absolutely. So what are some of the specific nutrients that we need during pregnancy? Yeah. So I think the, one of the big ones is iron. I think we talk a lot about iron, of course, in the plant-based community. You know, I think for the most part, a prenatal is going to be really helpful here just because the amount of iron that's needed during pregnancy is so much higher than is in the perhaps can be gotten by food alone. For most women, we recommend about 27 milligrams of iron per day, but that number actually might be a little bit higher for vegan and vegetarian women because iron tends not to be as bioavailable in a non-heme form as it is in a heme form. And so we really want to make sure that we're maximizing iron. You know, iron deficiency anemia is a very common nutrient deficiency, and that's not just for vegan vegetarian women. That's also for omnivore women. So it's not just something that, you know, is something that we see in the plant-based community, but really for a lot of pregnant women. And so making sure that not only you're eating iron-rich foods, but again, taking that prenatal, we do recommend a prenatal that has about 25, 27 milligrams of iron in it, and then having a diet that's going to supplement on top of that. If I can jump in on the iron comment, we hear a lot, you know, from the omnivorous community that that's, that iron is one reason why you really can't have a healthy plant-based pregnancy. And like Alex said, even if you're eating animal-based foods, you're very unlikely to hit the amount of iron that's recommended. Just to give you a picture of what about 27 milligrams of iron looks like, it's about 32 ounces of steak. So I personally don't know any women <laughs> that, are, that eat animal products that would eat 32 ounces of steak in a day. So telling women just to go out and eat red meat, that doesn't solve it. It would be about six cups of black beans as well. So it doesn't really matter what kind of diet you're following. You're not going to get to 27 milligrams of iron. You need to take a prenatal. And you can feel good in taking your prenatal vitamin that you'll be meeting those needs along with a bunch of others. And then just continuing to eat those iron-rich foods because they're good for you anyway. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that that meat in general is such a great source of iron. And really, unless we're talking about red meat, chicken is not, eggs are not. I mean, and, and a lot of people, you know, thankfully are, are trying to cut back on red meat intake as well. So again, you know, iron deficiency isn't that we see across the board. It's not just a, a vegan or vegetarian problem. It's really something that needs to be more aware of for, for all pregnant women. Do you have a favorite prenatal that you recommend? 
We do. We actually have a free supplement guide because we know that there are so many supplements out there. So we created this guide that sort of has a little bit of information about what things to look for because we can't be the eyes and ears for every single supplement that's out there. So sort of like a checklist of what to go through if you do find something and want to know if it contains what we think it should contain. And then a few of our favorite supplements. We also know that this varies widely across the world because we get emails all the time from people who say, hey, the supplement that you recommended isn't available here to us in the UK or in Australia. So that the free supplement checklist or the guide actually, again, has sort of like those specific numbers of things that no matter where you live, you can say, okay, does my supplement meet this? Perfect. And where can we get that guide? Because I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's free. It's on our website. So you can just go there and download. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. That's so helpful. Thank you. So other than iron, what are some other specific essential nutrients that we need to think about during pregnancy? Yeah. So iron is the big one. Folic acid is, or folate is really the one that I think vegans and plant-based eaters sort of have a a leg up on uh, just because a plant-based diet is very naturally high in folate. Prenatals, again, are going to contain this nutrient because it is so critical in helping to prevent neural tube defects, which is why you usually hear that the recommendation for starting a prenatal is sort of about when you're trying to conceive because, you know, you might not know that you're pregnant for a few weeks or perhaps even longer. And, you know, a lot of those brain and neural tube developments really happen in those early few weeks. And we want to make sure that women are taking enough folate or folic acid. Again, a plant-based diet is very rich in this, but it doesn't hurt to, to take that prenatal as well. So calcium needs do increase during pregnancy, but absorption also increases. So the amount that you need isn't really any different. So you just want to, you know, make sure you're continuing to consume those calcium rich foods. We're also both big fans of like a fortified milk, just because you can add that in into different kinds of smoothies. And it's a nice way to get, you know, 300, 350 milligrams of calcium, depending on what brand of non-dairy milk that you're, that you're taking. Yeah. Calcium is one that plant-based women specifically want to look out for, because I think we think that a plant-based diet is going to be naturally rich in calcium because it's found in so many different plant sources, but it's not found in very high amounts. And then as we discussed earlier, in the first trimester of pregnancy, when you're feeling like you want to barf all the time, (laughs) a few cups of broccoli isn't always going to be appealing to you. So fortified foods really help you get there, as Alex said. And if you're not having fortified foods and you're also not sure that you're actually meeting your thousand milligrams a day of calcium through whole foods, then you should definitely include a calcium supplement because the baby takes preference for calcium needs. So it will pull the calcium from your bones if you're not getting enough through your diet. I was just going to say that goes for all of the nutrients. Like the baby gets preference. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's really amazing. I think in so many ways, just how incredible our bodies are and sort of how they really know what to do. And, you know, it's not always great for our health, but I think it's always sometimes a little bit reassuring that like, I know my baby's going to be taken care of because my body is going to be designed to make sure that he or she is first. And then, you know, my, our needs are, are a little bit second. I was just going to add on to the calcium conversation. We have sort of a hack that we show where you can take a food grade calcium carbonate and add it to things like a homemade yogurt. So we do a homemade yogurt with cashews and different kinds of fruits. And then you can add a little bit of calcium calcium powder if you want, especially if you're finding that you know, you're having a harder time getting in enough from those whole food sources. 
we're very pro in the sense of like, yes, of course, we want to make sure to emphasize food first, but that's not always possible for so many reasons. And so, you know, supplements really aren't this four letter word. If that's what helps you to meet those needs, then that's, that's going to be a much better choice than not getting those nutrients at all. So on our Instagram channel, you can find our little story series on how to self-fortify your own yogurt because most plant-based yogurts at the grocery store are not fortified, unlike the beverages. Yeah. And then, you know, B12, of course, is going to be something that's important. We do recommend a supplement here. Of course, we know that there's so many foods that are fortified with B12, but because the need is is going to be higher for pregnancy and breastfeeding, it's just, we feel a safer route to make sure that you're getting it every single day through a supplement because absorption rates are going to be so much less when it comes to a supplement as well. We do want a higher dose, so sort of a minimum of 25 micrograms. So, you know, the the beautiful thing about B12, especially in, in an adult, is that there really isn't that much of a harm in taking a higher amount. So if your prenatal does not contain at least 25 micrograms, then we definitely want you to take an additional B12 supplement. Awesome. Yeah. And then the other thing I will just sort of point out is choline. And, you know, choline, I think is one of these nutrients that we're starting to hear more and more about. I know even when I was pregnant, gosh, four years ago with my son, it was sort of a a nutrient that I was just sort of starting to hear a little bit more research about. But even in those, you know, short four years, it's been a lot more that we know. And I think that's going to continue to be the case in the next decade or so. We're really understanding about this nutrient. Choline is really important in cognition. And we know that that unfortunately is usually found in higher amounts in animal foods. That being said, we also know that depending on what study you look at, anywhere from 85 to 95% of women are deficient in choline. And so, you know, when we look at that, we can say, okay, we know how important choline is when we look at the research, but gosh, if all of these women are deficient, we're not also seeing the cognition differences like you would expect with such a wide deficiency. So we do recommend increasing intake of soy foods just because soy is one of the few foods that is naturally higher in choline on a plant-based diet. Again, you can also look at supplements and more and more prenatals are starting to put choline in there. If you follow a vegetarian diet, eggs are a rich source of choline. There is some negativity when it comes to choline supplementation and increased production of TNAO, but really we're only recommending a choline supplementation for a shorter period of time in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And we think as of what the research says now, the benefits outweigh any potential negatives of having that increased production later in life. Great. Is there anything else that we've missed? Any other nutrients? Let's talk protein because that's probably the biggest question I think that we get about a plant-based pregnancy next to iron. Like with calories and like with really all the nutrients, it does increase, but it doesn't increase to drastic amounts that are unmeetable with whole foods. Basically, I think the average woman needs about 40, I think 46 is the RDA for the average amount of protein per day. It's seven, it goes up to 71 grams during pregnancy. And a good rule of thumb is take however much protein you're consuming now and add about 25 grams. And that can easily be met with a couple extra servings of beans a day, a whole grain peanut butter sandwich, and a side of tofu, something like that. It's really not a lot. It's not to the point where you need to all of a sudden start packing in protein powder or protein bars that people commonly ask about. So... I just tell people again, don't worry about keeping track. You don't need to, you don't need to get out a calorie counter or a protein counter. Just listen to your body because when you naturally increase your calories, you're going to naturally increase your protein because protein is in everything. 
as any savvy plant-based dieter knows. It's literally in everything. There's even protein in coffee. I love dropping that fun fact. I definitely wouldn't encourage pregnant women to try to meet their protein needs through coffee though. No, definitely not. Now, when we start breastfeeding, what do we do different? What do we need to increase? Do the supplements change? Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. So it's actually, luckily, pretty easy. During breastfeeding, all of your nutrient needs increase slightly more. So there's not a whole lot you need to change. The only thing I would say that is a big difference would be your fluid intake. You need a lot of fluid to produce a lot of breast milk. So your fluid needs go up to about 16 cups a day. But everything else, if you follow the general recommendations that we have for pregnancy and continue to trust your body, will naturally start intaking more of the nutrients that you need, more of the calories that you need, more of the protein that you need. So during breastfeeding, the technical amount, it's about 500 extra calories a day, but it's 450 calories a day extra in the third trimester. So 50 calories is not really something that you would even notice. It would just, it will just naturally occur. As far as supplements go, same thing. You're probably going to want to continue on your prenatal. There aren't a lot of postnatal multivitamins out there that I've seen. So most prenatal vitamins are actually formulated to be acceptable for the postnatal period as well, which like I said, is just slightly increased needs for each of the nutrients. So mainly you're going to want that pre-postnatal vitamin, potentially a B12 if your vitamin doesn't have as much as we recommend, potentially an extra choline supplement. And, oh, we didn't talk about DHA. DHA. There's a lot to remember. I want to say right now that as we're going through this laundry list, it can sound a little bit scary, I think. You're like, oh, I have to remember all of these things. Once you learn them, it's really not a lot. It sounds like a lot at first if this is the first time you're hearing it, but a lot of these things are things that you need to think about on a normal balanced diet anyway. And they're things that you should be considering whether or not you're plant-based. So most of these vitamins are things that omnivorous women need to take too. They need to take a multivitamin, they need to take choline, and they need to take DHA. So it's really all the same. So let's cycle back, talk about DHA very quickly. DHA is an essential or is a very long chain omega-3 fatty acid. Our bodies make it from the essential fatty acid, alpha-linolenic acid, but the conversion rate is really low. So most people get DHA from the diet through seafood because it's really only found in marine animals and marine life. However, for plant-based dieters, we can get it from microalgae. And so you can get it through taking algae oil supplements. Now, algae is actually the original source of DHA. That's how fish even get it in the first place. So by taking an algae oil supplement, you're cutting out the middleman. The reason we need increased amounts of DHA during pregnancy is because DHA is one of the main fatty acids that is found in the brain. And it's really important for building baby's brain, especially in the third trimester, and then up until up throughout the first two years of life. So it's critical that plant-based women and really any woman who's not eating two servings of fish a week should be taking DHA throughout her pregnancy, about 300 milligrams, and then continue taking it throughout breastfeeding. Mm, I love that. Awesome. And I think that sums it up. <laughs> Yeah. And I just really want to reiterate what Whitney said is because I think sometimes, you know, people will hear this and be like, oh, well, why would I even want to be plant-based, you know, when I'm pregnant or, or breastfeeding just feels like so many supplements. You know, again, all of this nutrition that we're talking about, we would say the exact same thing if we were talking to an omnivore woman. 
really besides uh, B12 and possibly DHA, depending on the diet. So, you know, these are things that you need to be aware of your diet when it comes to pregnancy and breastfeeding, not just because you're plant-based, but because you're pregnant and breastfeeding. And so, you know, just because you, you eat an omnivorous diet doesn't mean that you're automatically checking all the boxes when it comes to nutrition. And if this does seem a little bit weighty, We have a predominantly plant-based pregnancy guide that very succinctly sums it all up. We have so many different free handouts on our website that make it really easy to keep track of the supplements that you need and balance your plate. So there are plenty of resources out there, at least from us, (laughs) to help you handle this. Yes. I love your predominantly plant-based pregnancy guide. It's epic. And I'll link to it in the show notes as well. It's so great, so helpful. So thank you for creating that. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. So obviously, breast milk is liquid gold. And it's just, everyone knows it's jam-packed full of goodness for our bub. If for some reason we can't breastfeed, what are the best plant-based formulas that you have come across? Because this is a question I get asked a lot because I've not been in that situation before. I haven't done the research, but I want to hear from you guys. Obviously, we want to give them breast milk as much as we can, but if for some reason we can't, do you guys have any recommendations of the best plant-based organic formulas that we could give? Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's so much to sort of unpack here when it comes to, to breastfeeding and formula. You know, we're, we're very much of the mindset, I think, that fed is best. We know that breast milk, of course, is superior in so many ways. But for so many women, whether it's, you know, inability to breastfeed or whether there's, you know, they don't have the emotional support or the financial support or there's work issues. I was reading something the other day that like 75% of women turn to, to formula at some point in the first year of life. So we know that even if women are, are really trying and want this, it might not, you know, always be the relationship that they are thinking they're going to have. So just sort of saying that, you know, we are very pro whatever is best for, for you and your child. For the most part, I think we recommend any formula that is going to be affordable, accessible, and easy for your baby to digest because unfortunately there aren't a whole host of different options out there. So if your baby has any type of digestion issues, you know, one might feel better for them than the other. And we, we don't want to shame or guilt anyone because there just aren't that many soy or even pea-based formulas out there. And so even for plant-based moms who perhaps didn't want to turn to a cow's milk supplement or formula, that might be the best option for your baby, depending on what their needs are. And again, there's a lot of different digestion needs that, that come into play. The first thing I will say is that I don't truly know any formula in the US. So again, it's different around the world that is truly vegan. And that's because the vitamin D and DHA are usually animal source. So when it comes to a plant-based option, you're going to have a soy option. I, I think I saw the other day that they are, and, and again, you know, formulations change all the time, especially with the rise of more people turning to more plant-based diets. There's, you know, different offerings coming out. I am not aware in the U.S. at least of any pea-based formula that is for infants. There are some toddler formula options out there, but right now the only plant-based options for infants are going to be soy-based. And the question that we hear all the time, because if you take that canister of formula and you flip it over, the first thing you're typically going to see is something like a brown rice syrup or sometimes like a corn syrup. And, you know, people will say, oh, I want to find a soy-based formula that doesn't contain any sweeteners. And that is not going to happen. 
And that's because breast milk is very high in carbohydrates, much more so than a cow's milk is going to be, and especially more so than a soybean is going to be. And so in order to complement that natural sort of high carbohydrate ratio, and actually breast milk is probably lower in protein than some people think it's going to be lower in protein than cow's milk too, we have to supplement that sugar. And so we tend to add in any type of sugar. Usually it's a a brown rice syrup when you're looking for like more of the organic formulas, but different types of solids, corn syrup solids are also going to be fairly popular. So unfortunately, there's no soy formula that doesn't contain any added sugars. There are sugar, quote unquote, non-added formulas that are going to be cows-based because they can add in more lactose, but that's just not the case with soy. And You know, I just sort of like to educate around that because I think people see that and they think, oh, I'm not going to give that to my child. And unfortunately, just the way that breast milk, we're trying to mimic that, there's just, there isn't a workaround. Lactose is the main ingredient in breast milk and in cow's milk and lactose is a sugar. So if you're not going to have an animal mammal sugar, you're going to have to have a plant sugar. And so that and sugar is sugar. <laughs> so just, just what Alex said, I think a, a lot of parents get scared when they read sugar or corn syrup or the laundry list of other sugar derivatives that are, that are used in formulas. And it's just, it's important to educate that, that that's to make up for not having lactose. Yeah. And it's hundred percent necessary because carbs are the main source of fuel. And the same is true for the fat as well you know, soybean doesn't contain the same fat profile that a cow's milk will. So that's why we're going to see added things like palm oil or coconut oil, because again, we're trying to mimic the same fats that are found in breast milk. And breast milk is actually fairly higher in saturated fat. And so again, we're trying to mimic that. The other thing I will say is that a toddler formula is not regulated the same way as an infant formula. And so sometimes we'll get questions you know, there's a new toddler formula out in the market here in the United States. And we get asked a lot if babies are able to use that one. And they just do not have the same, especially micronutrient profile that you need for infancy. And so it's not recommended. Toddler formulas cannot be equivocated with an infant one. And then one last thing I'll just sort of say is that because we see this a lot, especially as parents are starting to wean, you know, when their baby is like 10 months old or 11 months old, they'll start to say, oh, I'm just going to give in some you know, regular, either whether it's soy milk or pea milk, or whatever, until the first year of life, only breast milk or formula is recommended. So I know that it can be heartbreaking, especially towards the end of that first year when, you know, your baby's eating more food and your supply naturally decreases. That's usually when a lot of women tend to have some, you know, perhaps supply issues because the demand just isn't what it used to be when the baby was younger. But we do not recommend any other type of non-dairy milk except for formula before the first year. I have heard that there are some pretty good formulas in Europe. I'm not sure of the brand, but there's some clean ones there that I have heard. And it seems like there's a bit of a gap in the market. So if anyone listening wants to try their hand at creating some really great formulas, like go for it because it does feel like there's a bit of a gap there. There is one brand that's working on, they have a toddler formula out right now and they're working on an infant formula. I think there's just a lot of hoops to jump through with getting it approved. And regulated, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully coming soon. We have that same sentiment about a lot of different things in the plant-based space (laughs) about a specific soy or pea milk that has exactly the profile that we want, a specific multivitamin for kids. There just aren't always ideal products out there. 
Yeah. And and I just sort of want to finish by saying too, that even in going through all of that, you know, formula is not poison. It is safe. It is regulated. You can feel very confident. I just feel like there's such this like mom shame and guilt sometimes when it comes to supply. And I know that in the breastfeeding community, it is very much pictured as like breast is best. And, And again, there are so many benefits to, to breastfeeding. But formula is not this, you know, terrible choice. If you choose to use formula or if you have to use formula uh, based on supply issues, please know that you're still a wonderful mother and that formula is not poison and you are not harming your child. Hmm. Yeah, that's really important. Recently, my team and I were looking for a designer to create some new Instagram story and feed animations for this show. Because my usual designer is on maternity leave, That meant we had to look somewhere else. Then we came across Design Crowd. And I have to say, we were so impressed. Basically, Design Crowd is a website with hundreds of thousands of designers ready to help you create your perfect custom design. Whether that's a logo, website, book cover, or social media ad campaign, a quality design can make a huge difference to your overall engagement and success in a competitive market. There are over 900,000 super talented designers from around the world ready to submit creative ideas, ensuring you get the perfect custom design every single time. Now, within hours of posting your job brief online, you'll receive your first design. And over the course of two to seven days, a typical project will receive 60 to 100 plus different designs. You then simply pick the best design and approve payment to the designer. That's it. How easy is that? Check out designcrowd.com forward slash Melissa. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-U-D dot com forward slash Melissa to receive up to $150 off. And keep an eye out on my Instagram over the coming weeks to see what we created with Design Crowd. So how do we make sure we're raising healthy plant-based kids and make sure that they're getting all of the nutrients that they need to grow healthy and strong? Yeah. Well, so this is, I'd say, a multi-pronged approach. Um, There's the nutritional aspect, the actual foods that we're providing them. And then there's the shaping the behaviors about these foods because we can, as parents, set any nutrient-dense food we like in front of them, but if they're not going to eat it, then what's the point? We're not achieving our goal. And if we're going to be setting them up for a lifetime of maladaptive eating behaviors, then we're also not achieving our goal. So I will cover the first part, the nutrition part, and then I think we're going to be diving into picky eating and and how to shape uh, positive eating behaviors in a little bit. We use what we call the PB3 plate. It's a visual guide that Alex and I developed to help parents plan out meals. Most of the nutrient concerns are the same as what we would recommend for a plant-based adult with a few exceptions. So one really important area is, is fat. So babies and toddlers, they need a lot more fat than adults do. Um, they need about 35 to 40% of their calories to be coming from fat. And so this can be a big difference between an adult plant-based diet and a child plant-based diet, especially if you're following like a whole foods plant-based diet, which can be naturally lower in fat. It's really important to remember that babies need fat and to include it regularly in their diet. So fat is right at the center of our plate. 
And we can give you a link to that so people can kind of visualize this while we talk about it. But that's one important aspect of the plate. And then we divide the plate into three other categories. So we've got, and these are all in thirds, we've got fruits and vegetables, we've got legumes, nuts and seeds, and we've got grains and starches. And this is another area where it might differ from an adult plate is that we only dedicate about a third of the plate to fruits and vegetables. And that's again, because fruits and vegetables are naturally lower in fat and lower in calories. And while we want our kids eating lots of them, we don't want them to fill up so much that they can't get enough of the nutrients that are going to have some of the other types of nutrients from the other categories. So they're not going to get as much fat if they're filling up on just the fruits and vegetables. They're what we call, we want them eating more calorically dense foods so that they can meet their calorie needs and their fat needs. But basically, if you fill your child's plate with food from each one of these categories as much as you can, then you're likely to meet your child's needs. And then we pair that with supplements on the side because no plant-based diet is complete without proper supplementation. And the supplements that we recommend for kids are very, very similar to what we recommend for adults. So plant-based kids are going to need a B12, a vitamin D, some iodine, and then potentially DHA as well. And that's kind of one that's really up to the parents. There's not really strict guidelines on whether DHA supplementation is necessary. But again, as I mentioned, the first two years of life are a really critical period for DHA accumulation in the brain. And while we can make it from from plant-based foods in our diet, like flaxseed, like soy foods, like walnuts, the conversion rate is low. So Alex and I both supplement our sons with DHA, and that is also included in our free supplement guide if you want to check that out. So really just making sure to plan and structure your meals is the key to meeting nutrient needs and thoughtful supplementation. Yeah, I love that because I hear that a lot too. People just say, I don't even know how to plan a meal. Like I don't even know how to balance a plate let alone for myself or for my child. So I'll link to the PB3 plate in the show notes so people can get a visual. And then let's talk about how that would change for an adult. So what would a balanced, well-crafted plate look like for an adult? Our adult plate is probably going to be fairly similar. We just might switch up the ratios a little bit. So for adults, we can eat a little bit more nutrient dense, don't have to worry so much about calorically dense, unless of course you're, you know, in periods of growth, like breastfeeding or or pregnancy. So, you know, eating more fruits, eating more vegetables, sort of filling up on those things that perhaps aren't as dense as some of the legumes or the starches will be. But, you know, really in general, I think our overall recommendations don't change that much. I think that's really helpful for parents to hear that, you know, the same foods that you're eating your kids can eat as well. You know, I'm not a fan of short order cooking or, you know, making one meal for myself or another meal for my children. You know, even my eight month old for the most part gets the exact same foods that, that we eat with a few exceptions, especially when it comes to like salt, of course, but we're really fans of all plant-based foods, as long as they're safe and appropriate for the ages of their kids can be served. And so you don't have to feel like you're making something just for yourself. That's different from your child. Yes, I love that. No one wants to be in the kitchen cooking four different meals. Oh, no, 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 no. And we do not recommend that either. (laughs) Yeah. So basically by just making sure that you're including a food from each of these three major categories, you'll also end up naturally 
hitting their needs for all of the micronutrients as well for the iron, the calcium, the vitamin C, the vitamin A, the things that we want them to get from foods versus the supplements, those are found in those three main categories. Yeah. And I think this is something too, you know, again, it's not just for, you know, people hearing this or thinking like, oh, well, I'm not vegetarian or I'm not vegan or I'm not plant-based. You know, the vast majority of children, well, and adults as, as well, do not eat enough plants. And one of our big missions is, you know, really helping to get more plants on the plate. So much of our preferences for food are really formed in those first few years of life. And so we're, we're really big on the idea that the more plants, the more that we can introduce our children to these nutrient rich foods, hopefully as they get older, they learn to continue to like these foods and they're part of the diet. You know, I think there's something abysmal in the United States, like only one in 10 kids eat the recommended amount of produce per day. And so, you know, whatever the rest of your plate looks like, there's a really big sort of call to action for us, especially as parents to say, how can I introduce more plants on my kid's plate? Knowing full well, they might not eat all of them or accept all of them at once and that's okay. But the more they're introduced to it, I think is a really, really good way to, again, sort of like solidify these healthy eating habits as they get older. Absolutely. I don't think any parent is debating that their child or children could do with more plants. I think everyone wants that for their children and for themselves as well. Ideally, we would raise them from day one with this mentality of eating lots of plants and getting them into their diet. But for someone who may be just starting on this journey and they have, you know, a four-year-old or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old and they're very picky and they've grown up eating a certain way and then all of a sudden their their mom listens to this episode and they get inspired and the mom changes their diet and then they want to start incorporating this into their family life but the child is just resistant and picky what can we do yeah so you know first it's never too late you know and and even it doesn't have to be this sweeping change overnight. You know, if you go from your children eating zero vegetables at all to now they're eating broccoli two times a week, that is a win, you know, and so keep going. You know, it is a journey for so many. And so really just sort of sticking to it. The other thing I will say when it comes to picky eating is that, you know, I think it's misunderstood in the sense that for a lot of kids, it is a normal part of development. You know, there are ways that we can lessen it and there are some strategies that we can implement so it doesn't become this bigger problem. But for a lot of kids, especially as they enter that sort of toddlerhood, it's synonymous with their becoming more autonomous people and them deciding what they like and what they don't like and them, you know, coinciding with that whole like, I can do it phase. It's very normal for that two-year-old, that three-year-old to start to say, no, 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 I'm in control of what goes into my body. And so it doesn't mean that as a parent, you did anything necessarily wrong. It's again, picky eating is, is so normal. The big things that we say is that one, we really like to follow what's called the division of responsibility in feeding. And, and this idea, this concept is sort of this, you know, parents are in charge of what we're eating. So I'm in charge of what food gets on the plate and I'm really in charge of when we're eating. So I decide meal times and snack times for the most part. But then my children decide how much they want to eat and if they want to eat it. And so that might look like I'm serving, let's say, a, a dinner of lentil tacos and maybe some, you know, berries and some avocado. And if all my son eats is avocado, that's okay. You know, it's my job to provide those sort of nourishing foods on the plate. And it's his job to decide if 
and when he wants it, if and how much he wants to eat it. And I feel like parents hear this and they think, oh my gosh, my children will starve or they'll only choose to eat whatever, chips or pasta, whatever it may be. And Or one other thing I think is, oh my gosh, so much waste. So much waste, yes. Well, yeah, usually that gets repackaged to the next meal or, you know, someone else in the family eats it, but yeah. Or or the mom or the dad eats it, yeah. <laughs> or I eat it, I was going to say, yeah. Especially in 2020 with pandemic parenting, mom's usually eating it, but um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, and I get that, I, I hear that, but really what we're trying to, again, teach our kids is that they are in control of their own bodies. So we're not ever forcing them to eat something. I don't think that any parent can think of an example where they force their kids to do something and it turned out, you know, really well in their favor. There's usually a control struggle. There's usually some sort of fight. And we want mealtime to be really enjoyable and fun. And when every meal sits down and says, oh, you must eat your broccoli, you must eat that, it's not fun for, for anyone. What does happen is that the more our kids see these foods as normal, the more they see them as part of the family meal the more they come to accept it. And this can take time. Nutrition is a long game, especially if you're the parent listening who's like, there is no way my kids are going to eat, you know, broccoli or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts. They might not at first, and that's okay. They might not even try it the 10th time you offer them. But at some point down the road, if you keep offering, if you kind of stick to it and say, this is the food that our family eats, I'm going to continue to offer it. They, they usually do come around. You know, it's like anything. The first time if we were going to eat something that was completely new and weird or we thought was gross, we're not going to just automatically put it into our mouths, especially if our parents are pressuring us to do that. It just doesn't happen. We want to feel comfortable around it. We want to feel safe around it. And especially when that comes to sort of that toddler, that sort of young, you know, preschooler who really needs to feel safe at what they're putting into their body. Food is no exception. And we, we just want to make mealtime really positive. And again, offering without pressure is really the key when it comes to lessening picky eating. I'll tell you, it may even take a hundred times or more. My son, Caleb, he's a little over two and a half now. He just started eating broccoli. And that is the first vegetable at two and a half, that he will eat on its own. I've been giving him broccoli probably three to four times a week on his plate since he started eating at six months. And he just started eating it. And it was such a big win. And I'll tell you, I'm sure any other parent would feel this as well. I thought he's never going to eat this. It's been been two years now and he just started eating it. So persist, persist parents. It will happen. We never pressured him. No, no. And we hear this a lot from people who will say things like, oh, I offered it. He doesn't like it. And I just think it's really helpful to continue to share that, again, it takes time and not to give up. If this is the way that you want your children to eat, especially if this is something that is brand new to you, it's going to take time. You know, I I even think about the adults where it takes time and continued exposure. You know, kids kids are no different. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a few things that you can do to make it easier. The most important thing is that when you're structuring your plate, when you're looking at the PB3 plate model and you're picking the three categories to put down, we suggest that at least two items on the plate are things that you already know your child likes. So that when he sits down to the meal, he's not just facing an entirely foreign plate. That's going to be really scary. And that's going to definitely increase the likelihood that the whole thing doesn't get eaten or it gets thrown off the table. So if you make sure to include at least two things that your child 
already knows, already loves, then you're going to drastically increase the likelihood of having a positive meal and having them try the new food that's on their plate. Yeah, that's really powerful and such helpful information. I have a question for you, ladies. With your son, Whitney, when he did start eating the broccoli, do you make a big deal of it? Do you celebrate it? Do you say, well done, like this is exciting? Or do you kind of not say anything? I'm curious, how do you approach this? I did not say anything because we didn't want to make it By getting too excited about that, then it puts so much power in the hands of the food. It starts to teach him that some foods are better than others, and we really want him to feel food neutral, that whatever he chooses to eat is going to be acceptable. Because when you start to pit foods as good and as bad, it's going to influence whether he likes them. So the one thing we always tell parents is never bribe your kids with dessert. So don't tell them if you eat your broccoli, then you're going to get dessert because in their mind that teaches them that dessert is the desirable food and broccoli is the undesirable food. And by doing that, they're always going to feel like they're always going to want the dessert over the broccoli. So by teaching them to be food neutral, that really helps to set the stage for them to choose to eat foods based on what their body is asking for and what nutrients they really need. So yeah, we didn't make a big deal of it. Me and my husband were like looking at each other across the table like, oh my God, my mind's exploding right now. We do congratulate him when he tries a new food though. So if we put a new food on his plate and we go, oh, did you see we included some baked cauliflower? It it looks like white broccoli, doesn't it? How funny is that? So we'll talk about the characteristics of the food, not necessarily the nutritional aspect. And then we'll say, do you want to try it? It's a new food. If he tries it and he spits it out, I go, that's okay. You don't have to eat it. I'm glad you tried it though. It's good to be adventurous and to try new foods. So I think that's a place where you can congratulate them, but it's always important to let them know that they don't have to eat anything. And I always say that when when my son starts to pitch a bit, like, I don't like this food. I say, that's okay. You don't have to eat it, but it's going to be there on your plate. And we're eating it. So if you decide to eat it, that's great, but it's completely up to you. Yeah. One thing we really want to do with picky eating is to diffuse the control. So much of picky eating, especially in sort of younger kids, is a control issue. It's a, you know, I'm going to decide. And if I think that my mom or my dad wants me to eat that, that gives that child so much power. And picky eating can quickly become a power struggle. And we don't want that. So if we kind of diffuse situation where it's like, hey, no big deal, buddy. You don't have to eat it. You know, or I'll give my son a little bowl and I'll say, anything you don't want, you can put in here. And it just sort of reminds them again that like, I'm not catering to you. You know, I'm still, I'm still choosing what our family eats. I'm always going to offer something that I know that you're going to like, but I'm still in the driver's seat. I'm still driving the bus, but you get to decide if you want to eat it. And that way too, he knows that I still hold the control of what we're having, but he doesn't have any control when it comes to, you know, making sure that he feels like he has to eat because that just becomes really, really tricky when it comes to solving picky eating. And there's just so much to this. Picky eating is such a huge topic for for all parents and you are not alone if you're struggling with it. You're actually in the majority. So Alex and I dedicated an entire chapter of our book. We have a book coming out this May on feeding babies and toddlers. And we have an entire chapter dedicated to picky eating because it's just such a common problem. (laughs) Yes, that's so great. I can't wait to read that. It's really important, the whole food neutral thing. I love that you guys want to raise food neutral children. It's really important. And the whole 
control and the power struggle. So it's about presenting it to them, putting it on their plate. Alex, your idea of like having a little bowl and saying, whatever you don't want to just put in there, you know, that's cool, whatever. Because then they feel like they have the power. They feel like they're the one in control when, you know, really you're the one that's providing it. I'm curious, you know, we want to encourage our children to be food neutral. However, packaged sweets, cakes, lollies, chocolate, chips, ice cream. How do we then teach them that those foods are not actually food, you know, a majority of the time? How do we teach that if we're then saying all food is neutral? Yeah, this is the the second full chapter we have in our book because there is so much here too. You know, the one thing I will say is that I think that it's very hard if we think that our children will never be introduced to these foods. You know, I wish I could raise my son and daughter in sort of this food bubble where, you know, they never come into contact perhaps with like artificial colors or, you know, different more highly palatable foods. I mean, that's just not reality. And at some point, our kids are going to notice that like, hey, when I go over to Johnny's house to have a sleepover, his mom has ice cream sundaes or whatever it is, and they're going to want in on the action. One thing that we know doesn't work, even though it seems perhaps counterintuitive, is the more that we restrict, the more that we we perhaps, you know, limit or restrict or don't like our children, you know, taste some of those foods, the more likely they are to go wild when they are introduced to them, you know? So if we never allow, let's say any kind of candy or cookie in our home, and then they go to a friend's house or go to a birthday party, they're likely because they've never been, they've never had any sort of like structure around how to enjoy it. They're likely going to overindulge. And we see this a lot, especially with kids who aren't allowed, you know, different kinds of sweets. They tend to start hiding them or perhaps when they do eat them, there's some binge eating behaviors going on. So we actually recommend introducing sweets when the kids are old enough. So we don't have to do this at two, you know, once they're older, once they are more aware of things in more of a structured way. So, you know, we want to teach them the the same thing, sort of how how we eat, where, you know, we want to eat a mostly, you know, whole food, plant-based diet, but also there is those exceptions and we are able to eat a cookie and it doesn't completely derail our diet or, you know, nutrition, again, I say this all the time is a long game and, you know, the, the occasional brownie or chocolate chip cookie or whatever it is, as long as it's not the norm of your diet, it's okay. And that is part of a healthy eating. You know, it's not healthy to eat healthy all of the time. And so when it comes to our kids, we can introduce them in a way that says, you know, again, sort of very chill, like, oh, I'm going to have a cookie tonight. Let's have one together and show them in a way that, you know, we're doing this. We're not making a big deal out of it. I'm not putting this food on a pedestal where it feels like it's this really rare occurrence. It's just like, oh, hey, it's Tuesday night. Let's have cookies. That also means that occasionally I'll also say, hey, I made cookies, have as many as you want. And what that does is it teaches our children to regulate. You know, we kind of want them to feel like, oh yeah, I don't feel that good when I eat five cookies in a row. You know, that can't be told, that has to be kind of felt. And we want our kids to be able to regulate themselves around these types of foods. And, you know, I think a big part of it again too is also modeling how that is in our own life, in our own bodies. You know, if we're showing them that like, hey, mom can eat this ice cream and, you know, does it in a way where I'm not binging it, I'm not doing it in this like really secretive way or this way where I feel like this ice cream has this power over me, but it's just 
a nonchalant thing. I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. And I can model that to our kids. They learn that these foods don't have this like intrinsic power that I think sometimes when we strip them, it just naturally kind of gives to them. And it's a very nuanced issue. It's really going to look different in every home. So you know, we had a lot of questions. Well, then does that mean that I have to go out and buy packaged foods in order to introduce them to it? And Alex and I say, I mean, do you eat packaged foods? Like, do you eat Skittles or Starburst or Twix or something? No, if you don't eat those things, then you don't have to bring them into your home in order to introduce them to your child. But if it's Halloween or you're at a party and your kid asks you if he can have a Twix, then at least in our homes, we would say yes. We wouldn't make a big deal about it. But that can look different for every parent. The overall big picture, though, is that restriction always backfires. And that's supported both anecdotally. Alex and I grew up with parents that tried to restrict the types of foods we ate. I, My mom, I used to call her the fruit and vegetable police because she would put out broccoli and carrots for a snack for my friends. And then we'd go over to my friend's house and she would have gushers. I don't know if you guys... <laughs> anyone's familiar with that snack from the from the 90s but I would raid my friend's pantry because I was not used to having these foods and certainly not allowed to self-regulate them myself so anecdotally I'll tell you and we can tell you that it didn't work and many other people who have been restricted growing up can tell you that but also that's really what the research shows the research shows the more you restrict kids the more they go in that opposite direction the more it leads to binge eating and the opposite is true as well if you end up having a child who is a super picky eater and you're having a really hard time getting them to eat anything if you're forcing foods on them you're going to see the opposite thing you're going to see them eating a lot less so the name of the game is always offering food without pressure removing the pressure from from the situation do you still educate the child when they go to the party and they want Skittles or whatever it is and you say, sure, and then maybe later on that evening you have a discussion about artificial colors or flavors? Like, do you do that? Is that something that you guys think is a good idea, talking about artificial colors and flavors and why those Skittles are not actually food? Or do you just leave it? Yeah, at a certain age, it can be appropriate when, as they get older, it's really important that you frame the conversation appropriately. So we're not talking about like, candy has a lot of sugar and that's going to make you gain weight. That's the type of phrase that might end up supporting negative food habits and a negative body image as they, as they get older. What we'd rather see you do is pump up the nutritious foods. So once they're at an age that's an appropriate go, oh, you know what? We love broccoli because broccoli makes our bones strong. Things like that, more of the positive and less of the negative. It's really, you know, telling them that an artificial sugar or artificial coloring may exacerbate ADHD, you know, just really isn't going to register with with most children. If you can think about most things that your parents might have tried to warn you about growing up, you're really not going to listen to it. So it's not always the most effective. So it's going to be more beneficial to you to talk positively about, about the benefits of food, I think, than it is to, to break down certain foods that we want them to avoid. And we also don't want to, you know, guilt or shame them and to say like, oh, you know, you ate that. Well, here's how, how bad it is for you. Those are messages that I think for a lot of kids, even as they get into the teenage years where they do become so much more aware of their body and perhaps the issues that, you know, to coming into adolescence and with puberty, we, we don't want to make them feel like 
they should feel guilty or shamed about liking certain foods. You know, I think that's one thing that we're, we're really aware of when it comes to, to modeling, you know, good behavior. And, you know, depending on the child, you know, you can have some of those conversations. But for the most part, I think kind of remaining like neutral. And again, it's about what they get most of the time. You know, if, if in their home, they're eating a healthy diet that you're providing, and then you, you allow them to go out and enjoy those sweets. It sort of shows them that like they can have both because kids are going to want both. You know, kids, kids want to be able to go to the birthday party and have for the most part, you know, the cake with their friends and feel normal and not feel like they're restricted because they're not able to enjoy those foods. And like, I think we just said is that if we give them the opportunity to learn about how these foods make them feel, that's going to have a more long lasting effect on them. So if they go to the birthday party and they have pizza and the cake and whatever else, and they come home and they have a stomach ache and they say, mom, you know, mommy, why do I have a stomach ache? That could be a teaching opportunity where you're like, well, sometimes when we eat a lot of these foods, we don't feel so good. And that's going to stick with them a lot more than if we're trying to explain to them the different reasons why these foods aren't as nutritious as other foods. Yeah. This is such helpful information. I would love to know now if you guys had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides all of your incredible books, what is one book that you would choose? And it doesn't have to be on nutrition. It could be on anything. But what's one book you would choose? It's a great question. Yeah. You know, I think I would choose Eating Animals. I feel like I think that there is such a disconnect with, I feel like that book really changed a lot of how I perceive things. And I think that, especially at the high school age, I would answer that question much differently when it came to like an elementary school or a middle school. But I think at that time where, you know, kids really, when it comes to high school entering in college, we know that from research, that's sort of the years that really started to like cement what their adult eating habits are going to look like. And I think that for so many reasons, we just don't have the conversation about what our food means besides just nutrition. You know, I think even sometimes in our professional world, when it comes to talking about other dietitians, you know, talking about the fact of how we get animals to for, for food or what that impact has on the natural world and, and on the environment and so many other of the ripple effects, it's just not talked about. And I think that the more that we can sort of frame the idea that, our eating choices are, yes, nutrition is important. Obviously, we're dietitians. We talk a lot about nutrition, as you can tell in the last, you know, hour or so. But it's so much more than that. You know, every single food that we choose to eat also has an effect on someone else's perhaps, you know, life if we're talking about an animal or on the environment, especially, you know, as things just become, I feel like more and more dire and more aware of our eating choices. I would love to see more education around that. I think there is very little and people are tend to be scared of talking about these topics because it feels really taboo and food is a personal choice. And we hate, you know, sort of letting anyone know sort of behind the curtain of what actually that food choice means. But I feel like, that eating animals is sort of a very philosophical book, but I think it just it talks a lot about you know the choices that we make when it comes to actually eating. I love it. I just read a, a book called How to Eat from Dr. David Katz, and it really breaks down a lot of the fundamental questions that people have about nutrition into and for uh, fear of, of sounding silly. 
in an easy to digest format. Um, it, it makes nutrition simple and it really highlights, I think, one of the most important things that we know about nutrition and that is that plants, the more plants you eat, the better. So there's just so much noise out there in the media and amongst different nutrition experts about the best way to eat. And really there are just a few things that we know about the diet, less processed foods, more plants. That's the key to good health. We don't need to be constantly haggling over the exact specifics of the diet. And that's, that's what this book really teaches, teaches children or could teach teenagers in school. And so I think, I think that would be a great required reading. Yeah, beautiful. And we'll link to both of those in the show notes. So thank you for that. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay, Alex, you can go first. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Eat more plants. Drink more water. Drink drink an extra cup of water. Love it. Okay, what is one of the most important things we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Okay, go. I'll go. Spend more time with people you love. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. I would say be more present. I feel like that's something I'm always struggling with, especially being a mom of two young kids and trying to, you know, grow my two businesses. It's just being more present when I'm working, I'm working. And that attracts, of course, you know, more success. And when I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. Beautiful. And final one, what is one of the most important things we can do for more love in our life? Oh, I think spend more more quality time with your partner. Give give out more love in every sense of the word, not just romantic love or love for your children, love to other people. I think everybody could use a little bit more of that right now, especially. Be kind. Be kind. Put out the vibes that you want to receive. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been so helpful, so informative. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? I think just as far as as meal planning for kids, because I think, I don't know if we completely answered that question. And I know you said that's a big question with parents is like, well, how do I actually do it? Alex and I have so many resources on our website about how to actually put these meal plans into place. We have a book called our Batch Cook eBook, which teaches you how to meal plan and prep and cook meals in advance in order to make your life easier in the moment. So that's kind of just one I want to highlight is that it may sound complicated, but once you get some of these fundamental ground rules in place, that it becomes second nature. I think that sometimes we feel like, you know, especially when it comes to our kids' health, we have to come in guns blazing with all of these new rules and think it's leaning into what feels right. If, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, gosh, my kids usually eat the traditional quote unquote kid food. And that's, you know, for so many reasons, what we're eating, that's, that's okay. Small changes make a big difference, especially when it comes to changing taste preferences. Those small wins really add up and it, you know, especially over a lifetime, it can make a really, really big difference when it comes to our kids' health. We like to encourage parents to do a plant a plate. That's a a challenge that we've run before is don't change anything else. Just get one plant on the plate. If you can make one simple change like that, that could make, that could lead to the beginning of monumental changes for your, for your child's diet. I love it. So helpful. Ladies, this has been incredible. You guys are helping so many people. You have so many incredible resources and we'll link to your website 
in the show notes and everything that we've mentioned because if anyone feels lost, all you have to do is go to your website. It's just jam-packed with so much information. You guys are helping so many people. You're serving so many people. So I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back and serve you. How can we serve you today? Thank you. Thank you so much for all the, the kind words. I think, you know, if you're not following us, we'd love for you to follow us. You can find us on our website. We have a lot of free resources, like you said, and we send out a lot of these to our email list. So if you subscribe to our email list, you sort of get first dibs on some of the subscriber-only bonuses that we give out, nutrition, specific recipes. Uh, We're also very active over on Instagram, and we have a book coming out that uh, will be launched in May of 2021. It's really sort of the book that I wish I had when I, you know, had my son. It's sort of everything that we've talked about today, plus more, you know, all of the questions that you might have, especially when it comes to a, a plant-based parenting and, and raising, you know, infants and toddlers and all of the many nutrition things that go into that. Uh, our book, The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler, will be coming out soon, and we'd love for you to, to grab it when it's live. Awesome, ladies. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, for all of your wisdom, for everything that you do and for sharing so much, so openly and honestly. It's been an absolute pleasure to connect with you. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. And congratulations on your pregnancy. (laughs) And if you've got any questions too, feel free to to ask us. We'd love to help you on the way if you need it. Thank you, ladies. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. So much goodness to take away from that episode. I was so inspired and I hope you were too. And I hope you got lots of notes to take away and implement into your life. And if you did get a lot out of this episode, please subscribe and leave me a review on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review. And it is from Liv Minard. And it's titled So Helpful. And it's a five-star review. And she says, I love this podcast so much and everything that Melissa creates. No matter what I'm going through, you always make me feel so much better and reassured. Also, your voice is so calming too. Thank you so, so much. Keep doing you. Thank you so much for that beautiful review. I am so grateful, my darling. And as a little thank you, I want to gift you one of my top four favorite products. And this week, I'm gifting the Wild Olive Oil product, which I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite products. And all you have to do is email hello at melissarambrosini.com with your address, and I'll send that over to you, my darling. And don't forget to come and tell me your top three key takeaways on Instagram. I absolutely love reading what you guys get out of these episodes. So that's at Melissa Ambrosini. Come on over and say hi. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.